Faith is the great cop-out. The great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence, said Richard Dawkins. Is he correct? If you're a Christian, are you supposed to leave your brain at the door? Close your eyes and jump on in. Don't think about it. We're going to begin today at looking at the account of Jesus' life written by Luke. And he says early on, you need faith. Every worldview requires faith. But he rips to shreds Dawkins' idea that Christian faith is a cop-out where you don't need to think. Don't need to ask. Don't need to evaluate. But Christian faith, rather, is far more robust, complex, historical, factual, than you may or may not be aware. So I'm going to ask Paul up now. He's going to read us the first four verses of this historical account. If you'd like to turn to page 878. Your Bibles, we're in... Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now in the first century, something had caused a bit of a stir. Jesus preached a radical message. He died a horrific death. And many said he rose again. And everyone was talking about it. Two years ago, Trump became president. And whether you're for him or against him, everyone was talking about it. That's what you do when unexpected things happen. And in the first century, Jesus was unexpected. That's why it says, verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. The fact is, many people were writing down things, what people were saying, what they saw, what the talk of the town was on. Uh, We Romans were writing things, Tacitus and Pliny. Jewish writers, Josephus and the Talmud, In these documents, which were written around the time, not in the Bible, we know all sorts of things. We know where Jesus was from. His mother was named Mary. His conception, irregular. He did apparently supernatural things, the crowds say. We know where he died, how he died, who killed him. And that some say he rose again. We know all that 
outside of the Bible. But Luke brings something unique to the mix. What does he say? Verse 3. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Now, here's the thing. Scholars agree that Luke probably wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus. But what he does is he finds people who definitely were. He goes round the countryside interviewing people. What did you see? What happened to you? What did you hear? And he compiles this impressive work, a two-volume part, Luke and Acts, the story of Jesus and the story of the early church makes up about a quarter of the New Testament. And in putting together this account, Luke says three things which are important. He says he has carefully investigated, which means as we read Luke's gospel, right, there are going to be details in here that you are going to be tempted just to skip over. Dates, political leaders, numbers, times, genealogies. And you think, oh, boring, next. When I read Lord of the Rings, right, it's a big book. And Tolkien, to be honest, spends so much time describing how, what colour the grass is and what colour the leaves are, and I just skip over it, right? Fluff. You might feel the same when it comes to Luke's gospel. But Luke puts these details in here to show you this is not a piece of creative writing. He's carefully investigated. I want you to know it. The other thing he points out is it's an orderly account, chronologically beginning at conception and birth and and then to the resurrection of Jesus. He wants you, the reader, to get to know this Jesus. Walk with him. Hear what he has to say. Does he live up to what he claimed? And thirdly, right, and most importantly, verse 4, what does it say? Luke writes this so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Put your finger on that word certainty. That word in the original Greek is ashphaleia, which sounds like what English word? Ashfelt. It's the same idea, rock solid. Luke uses that same word in Acts chapter 5 where it says, we found the jail securely locked. Ashphalaya. See, Luke, when it comes to reading the account he's written, he wants you to have Ashphalaya, certainty, securely locked when it comes to the things of Jesus. If you're a Christian here, does this describe, does this image capture your faith? Certain. Not going anywhere. If you're a skeptic, is this the image you have of a Christian's faith? Because here's the thing. Who is Luke writing to? What does he say? Most excellent Theophilus. Now he is a man who has definitely not met Jesus. He is one step removed we are 2,000 steps removed. Regardless of how many steps it is, it is hard to believe in someone you've not met, isn't it? 
But it is far more it is far harder to believe in someone to sorry to change your whole life for someone you've not met. Luke knows this. He knows it's big. But he doesn't want you to have a faith that is just well, I'd like it to be true. My parents told me I grew up with it. I feel it's true. Because when the winds change, so will your faith. Media, workplace, books. You'll get bombarded with questions and questions and questions. And if your faith is not certain, it'll go. You need to have a faith, Luke says, that is grounded. It says, this is why I believe. Here is the evidence that leads me to. This is the basis on which I hold on to. Luke wants you to have certainty. So to that end, let's see how Luke achieves this in the opening chapter of Luke. I'm going to ask Paul and Jess to continue reading to verse 38. Verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth not able to conceive, was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zachariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came, and when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now... You will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, 
because you do not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I quite enjoy biographies. Uh, I read a biography or two every summer. But in all the biographies I've ever read, none of them begin with the person's conception. Bit awkward thinking about your parents having sex, I guess. But uh, Luke begins with not one, but two conception stories. He introduces us to two people, Zechariah and Mary. Two different scenes, kind of mirroring each other, and yet there's a noticeable difference between them. Let's get to know Zechariah. Verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Now let's just stop there, right? Some of you have switched off. You're thinking, oh, more. No. Why is that in there? Carefully investigated, right? Let's continue. Verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. What stands out is Zechariah and Elizabeth are a righteous, godly, outstanding couple. And yet, they're infertile which shows infertility has nothing to do with the character of a person, does it? But even if they would, even if they could, they're what? Old. Mary. Verse 27. 
says she's a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So likewise, Mary is described in a similar way to Zechariah. Godly, righteous, outstanding. But her problem is not old age, is it? It's virginity. Now, why would Luke highlight these two issues? Because of what is about to come. See, both of them get visited by the same angel, the angel Gabriel. Now, neither Zechariah or Mary are atheists. They're very religious people. But how do they respond when they come face to face with an angel? Gabe, how are you? Haven't seen you in a long time. Take a seat. How the heavenly... Now, what do they do? Verse 12, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Mary, verse 29, was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. They were just as shocked as you or I would be. Now, you might be thinking, I can't believe there's angels in a historical document, right? And I don't have time at all really to go into it, but just a thought I had. We think we're open to the idea of intelligent life being on other planets. Why are we so close to intelligent life being on this planet besides humans? Anyway, we'll just park that idea, just a thought. Don't send me an email, it's just a thought. But anyway, angel, right, we think is a special word, it actually just means messenger, mailman, right? And the message they ha- Gabriel has is one of comfort. Don't be afraid. Zechariah, don't be afraid, Mary. You're going to have a son, a boy. But hang on. Remember what Luke said previously? Both Zechariah and Mary have physical prohibitions in making this a reality. Infertility, virginity. Zechariah asks, verse 18, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Mary says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, both of them know basic biology. Mary knows where babies come from. She knows about the birds and the bees. Zechariah knows that retirees don't have baby showers. Right? They know basic biology. So they ask a very logical question. How will this be? What happens? Zechariah is punished, silenced. Mary's not. What's the difference? So you might be thinking, hang on, if Luke wrote this so that we can have certainty, and the first doubt that arises, they're told to shut up literally for nine months. What's the go with that? See, both Mary and Zechariah... They ask, how will this be? They acknowledge the physical impossibility. But what does Zechariah say that's different? He adds, how can I be sure of this? Now, Zechariah is a man who is a priest in a temple. He knows God's law. He's familiar with his ways. He knows that God has used the barren wombs of women And brought forth life. In fact, his people, God's people, began from Abraham and Sarah. 
Iraqi pensioners who were barren and old, and yet God bore life a people through this couple. He knows that. He is standing where in the temple burning incense. He had a one in 18,000 chance of that being of that opportunity, and he is there, and who is he face to face with? An angel, and yet he says, how can I be sure of this? How can I be sure? So you can read Luke's gospel. Hear the evidence. Hear the arguments. Read the other accounts. Listen to experts. But the thing that will stop you from believing is not the lack of evidence, but it's pride. Because you think, God, yes, all those things are there, but you know what? I want you to do this. Jump through that hoop. Do this sign and this and and then I'll believe. See, Mary is someone who still asks, still has her doubts. How will this be? But she comes to it with what? Humility. She says, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. See, Luke is saying you can have certainty. But in order for you to have genuine faith, you need to think, you need to evaluate, but you need humility. I say to people, becoming a Christian is kind of like deciding to get married. When you decide to get married, you're looking for signs of evidence. Is this person trustworthy? Can I commit my life to them? You're going to have all the questions answered. But you have the important ones. When it comes to trust in God, you're looking, is there enough evidence for me to trust him? You're not going to have every question answered. But is there enough here for me to trust him? To give my life to him? It's often said that good things come in small packages. And as the angel says to Zechariah and says to Mary, you're going to have a boy. But these two boys are chalk and cheese. They're completely different from one another. Let's have a look at John. Verse 13. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, because, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and they will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Three things about John. The first thing that probably stood out to you, no alcohol. It's not because God is anti-wine. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. But it's a sign that John was going to be different to those around him. 
Just like the first prophet in the Old Testament, Samuel, was not allowed to have wine, he was going to be different. The second thing you notice there is the Elijah is mentioned. Now, Elijah in the Old Testament is the greatest of all the prophets. But here the angel is saying, John will have a more intense pouring out of the Spirit on him than even Elijah. That of all the prophets that have ever existed in the Old Testament, this John is going to be greater than them. But, thirdly, he's not the main event. What does it say? He's going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He is the warm-up act. He's not the end game. As great as he may be, he's not the goal. But he's getting ready for the one who is. And we'll see more about him in the coming weeks. Let's look at Jesus. Verse 30. This is what the angel says. Verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son, Mary. And you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Three things about Jesus. Notice his position. When he comes into the world, it's the expectation that what? He will be the Son of the Most High. Now, you cannot get higher than the Most High, right? And he's the Son of the Most High. Secondly, his authority. Notice words like throne and kingdom will never end to use. Kings come and go. Politicians too, particularly in this country. But Jesus' kingdom will never, ever, ever end. And thirdly, he has divine ties. Verse 35, the angel said, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Yes, Mary, you're going to have a boy. Yes, Mary, you're going to have a son. But inside your womb is the very Son of God. Now the phrases the angel is using, they may be unfamiliar to you. But they're not out of the blue. The angel is pulling together a culmination of all Old Testament passages. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, Psalm 132, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and he is pulling them together to say that the whole longing of God's people, that prophet after prophet came, king after king came, promise after promise came, and it was all pointing to this moment, this climactic entrance that the Messiah, the King of Kings, has arrived. God's people were wide-eyed waiting. Where is he? When is he going to come? Anticipation was high. And the angel is saying, he is here. The thing about having church in Kirribilli is you always know when power is in town, don't you? A couple of weeks, Megan and Harry are coming just to get your royal blood excited about that. They're coming, and you can, you'll be able to tell when they're here. Helicopters overhead. 
police will stop as they head to Kiribili House, stop the traffic. Arcades of cars will come with flags. You'll notice that power is here. But when the most powerful person ever to exist entered, barely anyone noticed. See, the fulfillment of God's promise came in the most unadorned package imaginable. The womb of a nobody, Mary. In a town of Galilee. And nothing good has ever come from Galilee. This is the beginnings of a king, yes. But a king who is so unking-like. Speaking of kings, they say Larry King is the greatest interviewer of our time. And he was asked once, if you could interview anyone, Larry, anyone from throughout time, who would it be? He said, Jesus Christ. I said, what would you ask him? He said this, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. Because the answer to that question would define history. He's right, isn't he? If Jesus indeed is someone special, virgin born, Messiah, King of Kings, Son of the Most High, Son of God, then it changes everything. But Larry King missed the interview that had already taken place, hadn't he? See, how do we know that Jesus was virgin born? How do we know what happened between the angel and Mary? Luke interviewed the only eyewitness present in that room, Mary. We say this when it comes to the resurrection, and it is equally true when it comes to a moment such as this. In the first century, women's testimony meant nothing. Too emotional, too untrustworthy, they'd say. And yet, here, we have the testimony of Mary. That Luke interviewed her, listened to her, believed her, and wrote it down. The question is, do you? See, Luke wants you to have certainty when it comes to the Christian faith. But he doesn't make the truth more believable. There's angels in here. There's priests who doubt. There's a woman's testimony upholding one of the most precious Christian truths around, that God became one of us. And Luke puts it in here because... He's carefully investigated, written an orderly account so that you can have certainty. Whether you're Theophilus or whether you're living in the 21st century, he wants you to have certainty, to have ashphalaya, 